0: Welcome to the Haas Podcast. I'm Chris Kim. Today, we have Dima Okrimchuk, CEO and co-founder at Organization.gg. Dima is a Haas MBA alum and an experienced leader leading Organization.gg's mission to be a marketplace for live stream experiences in the gaming multiverse. Dima's background includes working in investment banking and as a business executive in Kyiv, and was recently featured in Poets and Quants about his views and experience on the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Dima, welcome and great to have you on the show.
1: Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, Dima, it's awesome to have you uh, today on the podcast, you know, we'll talk a bit about your background, but I know you're, you're super passionate about just sharing what's going on in Ukraine today and the experience that people are having. So we'll definitely focus a bunch of our conversation today, but on that, but just to kind of start kick it off, could you share a bit about your background from your people can probably see is you studied in the Ukraine and then came to Haas for an MBA, but can you explain what was it like growing up as a young kid and how did you end up coming to Berkeley Haas all the way across the world to get your MBA.
1: Yes, Chris. So as you said, I was born and raised in Kiev, Ukraine. At the time I was born it was actually USSR. It was 1988. But it was the Gorbachev times, so I don't remember a lot about those times. But what I do remember growing up as a kid is that Ukraine was a young country with a lot of opportunities on one hand, but zero structure. The more force and power you had, the more you could earn. And then that's actually how things evolved in Russia as well. This is where you can see those oligarchs are coming from. So people who were the most aggressive and the most ambitious, they kinda were able to get more in their lives during those times in the nineties. Growing up, my dream has always been to become a, a pilot when I was younger, like a commercial pilot, probably that led me into reading a lot of books about like other countries. And I was always like passionate about traveling. And I think my parents were, had this opportunity actually to have this exchange program where I spent the summer in the U.S. when I was eight years old. So it was just myself flying all over from Kiev to New York, the stop in somewhere in Iceland, I think it was Reykjavik. It was an amazing trip because I could barely speak English. And I clearly remember how I was crossing the customs in JFK because I, I see this guy asking me, and I remember his words, are you traveling alone? And I couldn't answer anything because I didn't understand what he was asking. So he said, okay, okay, just wait here. And then he asked someone to translate what he was asking. And then I I said, yeah, I'm, I'm alone. And then someone came up and they took me to this host family where I spent um, those three months. That was my first interaction with the U.S. And I think it made a huge mark on my sort of like further development and ambitions. And after graduating from Shevchenko University in Kiev, where I did international business, I had this wish and dream to get education abroad. And um, since I already had some experience and friends in the U.S., I thought U.S. should be the country. And uh, one of the jobs that I was doing was venture capital fund. I was working there and we had a business trip to the Silicon Valley and we visited both the Stanford university and, and UC Berkeley. And, um, I thought, this is it. Like I have to study, I have to. You know, I have to be near where all the innovations are coming from, but uh, UC Berkeley, this is where I had the fit, cultural-wise, uh, foremost. So in 2015, I did, I started my MBA at UC Berkeley. It was an amazing experience because my dream essentially came true. And it was, in a way, it was a bubble, a good bubble with amazing people from 50 countries with, with their backgrounds, with their own experiences. And in that time was an interesting time because in 2014, Russia started their invasion into Ukraine. They started off by annexing Crimea and taking our Eastern parts away, including parts of, of Ukraine. And when I came to UC Berkeley, I remember all of my classmates asking like, what do you think about what's going on? Like, how's your family? It was the first time we encountered war. So when everyone is talking and saying that the war started on the 24th of February, it actually started much earlier than that, like back in 2014. And that was the sort of evident aggression of Russia towards Ukraine, but their plan of invading, I think it has been there for decades, if if not longer.
0: Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that, Dima, you know, one of the things that people experience often in the MBA program is some kind of life-changing experience. But for you specifically, it's almost, there was essentially almost a war in in Ukraine at that time. And then you were coming to the MBA program, like right after that, or even during that. What was that experience like for you? And what was going through your mind as you're sitting in class, but also your family and friends back home, maybe going through that experience as well?
1: Yeah, that's a good question, because I think I was worried like a lot of Ukrainians, but at that time it wasn't as bloody and scary as the war is happening right now. Because in 2014, it was, there were a lot of people killed and there was a lot of blood too, but it was segregated to specific regions, which were at that time, perhaps some of the people that lived there, there were sort of like pro-Russians. Mm -mm. And it wasn't as black and white as it is today. And there wasn't these, the massacre that is taking place right now. I think it wasn't the case back then. At least it wasn't, we didn't have as much information as we do today with those public groups, telegrams, live streams, etc. So at the time it felt bad. It felt terrible, but it was happening on the Eastern parts of Ukraine, which kinda didn't influence. 90, 95% of the country, 90% of the country it was more like a territorial conflict, but yeah, which is not the case now, unfortunately. Okay.
0: It's good context. Could you maybe explain one of the things in your experience and your background that's unique? Is you um, finished up at Haas, and rather than staying, you know, in the Bay Area or the bubble of the Bay, you you actually returned back home. Could you explain why you did that and what was the reasoning for that? And then also, what was the experience like having that experience and then being able to bring that back to the country where you grew up?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was my goal uh, from day one. I wanted to build out the network, get the knowledge from UC Berkeley meet a lot of talented people, but upon graduation, I always wanted to come back to Ukraine and, you know, started using that knowledge and sharing that knowledge with Ukrainians because Ukraine is a young country with a lot of, with a lot of perspective and with a lot of opportunities in that country. For me, that was never a question of whether to stay or to come back to Ukraine. And having that experience allowed me to get an amazing job in Ukraine. When I came back to be able to share. The knowledge with other people that are willing to get education abroad and specifically in the U.S. and UC Berkeley and to share the share the vibes and to share the goodness of being able to get the education abroad and then coming back and having all these opportunities as a, a UC Berkeley grad was amazing so I wanted to spread the word about it and to motivate other Ukrainians to go abroad, live there for a while, and then perhaps come back. But it's their decision at the end of the day, but the opportunities are immense in Ukraine. So there's no reason of not willing to come back. And like while, while I was studying in UC Berkeley, like Ukraine made such a big progress. Even it was already in war with Russia, not in the most active phase, but so many like new small businesses opened up a lot of new restaurants, bars. Like Ryanair, like one of the low costers entered the Ukrainian market. It opened up a lot of European countries. So people could travel, pay 20, 40 euros and and travel to Madrid, London, Paris, and then bring the bus back to Ukraine. This is what was happening. And I don't know if you could ask like foreign visitors who were in Kiev in the last year or two, I wouldn't, I'm sure you're gonna, you would have heard like An amazing feedback, and people would be coming back after their first visit. And that would be happening in a lot of areas, like startups, venture capital, restaurants, mom and pop Mm -hmm. shops, like everything Mm -hmm. was booming. And maybe that because of like the freedom and pro-Western values that we were able to bring to Ukraine. And perhaps Russia, by looking at what was happening in Ukraine, by seeing all those big developments and huge leapfrogs towards pro-Western values, perhaps this was always super irritating for the autocratic like leader, like Vladimir Putin is. And for him, that was a bad example for the Russian people because they could see what was happening in the neighboring country mm-hmm. and they could motivate them to change the existing political structure in Russia. So. Perhaps that has always been the reason for him to make the aggression towards Ukraine.
0: Yeah, Dima, you know, as an as an example, you know, you you came back to Ukraine and became really quickly like a tech executive and then became a, you know, founder and CEO of your own companies. Can you explain what that business was like and running what running a business was like in Ukraine before the conflict and then also could you talk a bit about, you know, what that experience was like post conflict or when the conflict started and how live the lives of folks on the ground changed pretty rapidly in that course of time?
1: Yeah. So when we say, when we're going to talk about conflict, I'm going to be referring to the, to this sort of the, the conflict or the aggression that's, that took place on the 24th of February this year, because the war has been there for the last eight years, but this Mm -hmm. sort of part has has evolved uh, dramatically starting from the 24th of February. So doing business in Ukraine was never simple. And that's unfortunately the true fact that we have to face, but it has been Starting and doing business has been much easier in the last two or three years. There's has been a lot of like changes to law and uh, just the perception of inter- entrepreneur has changed a lot in the community. And uh, before everyone was looking for jobs within like state or banks or like some larger companies. But in the last four to five years, this has changed dramatically. And now everyone turned turn out to be their their entrepreneur, starting be being a freelancer, traveling, starting their own uh, shop or creating a fashion brand. And uh, some of these guys, they managed. Not to be successful only in Ukraine, but they managed to build global companies. If we talk about like tech companies, for example, I'm sure you've heard about Grammarly, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about Reface. We hope to be one of those companies too at Organization GG. So in a couple of years, you could name us too, like Preply and, and a bunch of like GitLab, they're all companies with Ukrainian founders building global businesses. Same goes for like fashion brands like Baginsky. His famous hats, they were worn by Madonna, for example, and a lot of other celebrities. Things were going like pretty well for a lot of ambitious entrepreneurs in various sectors. But obviously when the war hit more than a month ago, things just changed dramatically. From the latest data that I've seen, 80% of businesses in Ukraine, they stopped doing business. So. They're not making any money. They're not being able to pay any salaries. So the whole economy is just, it's not there. It's non-existent. Only in the last week when Russians left Kiev and left the outskirts of Kiev, and I've talked to my mom and my family and my friends, they said that some of the business are coming back, like some of the shops are opening back, some of the cafeterias, cafes, restaurants, but still life is not back to normal by any means. And especially that Russian forces are not gone. They're just being relocated to the Eastern parts of Ukraine, to Donbas and Lugansk, and now they're going to focus all their, all their power specifically on those regions, but it doesn't mean that they're not going to be using artillery or missiles in, in other regions of Ukraine, like they did before. They were shooting in Lviv, the Western parts uh, of Ukraine, they had a missile shot 20 miles away from the, the, the border with Poland while Biden was, was visiting Poland, it was happening simultaneously. It was also like an act, a blatant act. So definitely people don't feel safe at all. It's a state of war. Like my team, for example, at Organization GG, when this happened, some of them managed to drive to Western parts of Ukraine, get their families out. Some stayed in, in Kiev, but obviously you cannot do your proper work and In the first couple of days, everyone was just shocked, but then the beauty of Ukrainian society and what is happening right now, people are, became so united, but we, because of this aggression that everyone was just working towards helping Ukrainian army and to help Ukraine just withstand that, that first attack that was taking place. I remember in the first two or three days, the first day was terrible because you saw that Russia attacked like the whole kind, can- the whole sort of country with missiles and all the foreign analysts that Kiev is going to be gone within two or three days and the government is going to be, is going to be gone. So it felt mm-hmm. like we're losing the country. We're losing the homeland and no one knew what's going to happen. So a lot of people panicked. They put anything they could into their cars and tried to leave the country. And then I think in the first week, over one or two million people left, so with the like huge traffic jams outside of Kiev. people were traveling for 40 to 45 hours on the route that before would take them like five to eight hours. People were sleeping in the car without food, without drinks, without gas. It was just like devastating. But when we realized that Ukrainian army is actually doing pretty well, We didn't know it's doing that well as it does now, but doing pretty well. People started doing everything towards supporting and helping. And this, like on the third or fourth day, people were just, any chat you go, any friend that, that I spoke to was doing something, uh, tiny or big, but it was, uh, tailored towards helping the Ukrainian army and us to survive. And that's amazing. And we continue doing that. And I think. By this war, it's not only Ukrainian people who are united, but a lot of countries in Europe, the NATO countries, the US, some of them were able to find their purpose in in the world because now there's like this black and white Russia with its soldiers who are raping, killing, killing innocent people. Obviously it's black and it's been, it's a fact, it's been proven by a lot of like media sources and analysts and Ukraine is like white because it's a small country which is fighting the second largest army in the world. No one expected that. NATO is afraid of fighting, but we are, and we're doing it successfully. At the end, we, we don't want to even, we want to win this war and we will. And that's because we are united and we were able to ignite this unity for countries that are currently supporting us. Because in this war, again, there is no gray. There is no gray zone. It's just black and white. Ye- and evil fighting against people who want to live their lives. We're fighting for their dignity, for their pro-Western values, for the independence, for
0: the life of the kids. Yeah. Dima, it's a great context, you know. And could you share a little bit about, I know folks have maybe seen things in media and maybe they don't, even though they see it, they don't quite understand. Can you explain maybe just what you've heard from family and friends who are, are still in Ukraine and are still going through that? What is that experience like on a daily basis for folks in terms of what are they thinking, what are you hearing, and what are the current state of folks, just so that folks who maybe don't know that much about what's going on or have only seen the headlines really can understand what that experience is like at a human level?
1: Just for context, I'm currently um, not in Ukraine, I'm in, in Lisbon. We came here with my wife 10 days before the war started, and we decided to stay here because we thought I'm not a soldier. So I thought I could bring more value by working from Lisbon and helping out with digital activities and etc. But my family, my, my parents are in Kiev. A lot of my friends um, are in Ukraine. My wife's mom, she was actually in Bucha when it was invaded by Russians. And she actually lived through a horrible, just horrible experience because she was hiding in the cellar of your house for seven days without electricity without food and without water and without heating so on the seventh day she didn't have any choice but just to go out and try to flee bucha and luckily she was able to do it because there was like a small group of people looking for an exit too and they teamed up And with the, they kind of had like cars going out of Bucha and she was lucky to do that. For other people that, that stayed or weren't that lucky, the outcome was tragic to say the least. Some of, I don't know if you've, you've heard about the the massacre in Bucha, I'm sure you did, but I'm, you know, every day we, we discover new, new deeds of, of Russian soldiers if you can call them that way they're not even i cannot even call them humans by by what they did just to give you an example there is a proof that they were raping kids there was like six year old boy was raped by russian soldiers and they tied his mom to a chair so she would watch them do it and this is i don't have any comments for that it's again they they, did like their goal was and is to get rid of ukrainian people it's the genocide of ukrainians so in Bucha, it was just drastic and devastating, like in other cities too. Like, it's difficult for me to, to comment because I wasn't, I'm not there, but, yep. Um, yep. living under missiles and bombardments, this is something that you're not being able to use to, and this is for all the people, this is a new experience that they never asked for. They do everything to survive basically, like all your goals, all your dreams. They're set aside. Now, the only goal is to survive and to help Ukrainian army, to help your family and to help your friends. This is what life of uh, of an average Ukrainian looks right now. Some are in better conditions. So a lot of people were able to move to to Western parts of Ukraine. It's pretty safe there. It's being bombarded time to time, but usually Russians are targeting like infrastructure buildings, like oil refineries, et cetera. So a lot of people stay there. For the time being, they are renting out apartments and continue, if they're able to work remotely, they do try to do that. But a lot of people are just helping on uh, to organize logistics from Europe, European countries, so they can bring medicine, food, etc. So they're looking for not ammunition, but, but food, medicine for those supplies and take care of the logistics. People in Kiev, where my mom and my dad are right now, they are Like my, my mom is not in the, there is a Ukrainian army and there is a territorial defense. These are the people who voluntarily agreed to defend the city or village they live in. And they were given like very basic tutorial on what to do. And they were given machine guns and they were actually creating or preparing Molotov cocktails. So they were doing everything to meet and greet the the Russian soldiers that would come. So a lot of people are uh, engaged in this territorial defense. So these are obviously th- these are men mainly and uh, everyone else, like I know some of my friends, they were running like a restaurant, so they're still running a restaurant right now, so their cooks are there, but they're cooking for the Ukrainian army and for the territorial defense. They're getting donations, and for these money, they're preparing food. Some guys who were manufacturing like jeans and fashion, fashion stuff. Now they um, they're sort of doing, you know, something for the Ukrainian army too, like the boots or the, the the specific uniform. So everything is is tailored again for making sure that Ukrainian army has the force to fight and win at the end of the day. We also have an, um, a large IT army.
0: Yeah,
1: These are are the guys who were in tech, but they decided to leave their products for a while and start uh, helping Ukraine. So a a lot of, you know, DDoS attacks are, are being currently conducted by the Ukrainians targeting like Russian banks or military companies that are producing, you know, tanks, it's not only Ukrainians, a lot of Europeans, people from the US, they also contribute to this. And I'm sure you know about this foreign legion. That's over 20,000 people from all over the world came to, you know, to fight for Ukraine because they see it as the only sort of choice to help the white win against the the, the black. So everyone is doing whatever he can, even if it's small or large. But again, you know, everyone is is sort of united around Ukraine, keeping its independence and winning this war.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know, Dima, the not only um, the school a lot of students on campus just from my personal experience have been really outspoken and wanting to do, continue to support the the people in Ukraine to make sure they have everything that they need and that that they, that they're supported as part of a, a global effort you know what are could you explain maybe what are some of the things that you think folks who are interested in helping can do to really help the folks in Ukraine and are if there are any organizations or initiatives that you know of that could be ways that maybe hossies could get involved and help and you want to share that that would be great as well
1: Sure, sure. That's a great opportunity to do that. There are multiple ways how anyone can help. So starting from donations, not only to support Ukrainian army, but for the humanitarian needs of, of Ukrainians, a lot were forced to flee their homes. And a lot don't just, people didn't even lose, It just they lost their lives. And obviously they need the financial support, they need food, clothing you know, a- anything that could be delivered to Ukraine. So the donations is the first part, then boycotting and boycotting Russian goods and services, it's also an important part of the, um, sort of economic sanctions that are already imposed by the governments. But if you're able to boycott the goods on an individual level, that also helps a lot because the population of the U.S. is, the U.S. market is amazing and it you stop buying Russian vodka or Russian products, that would help a lot. But currently, like, taking into account all the sanctions that are implemented, the main one is to be boycotting their energy sources, namely oil and gas. Because since the war started, Russia has been able to sell their energy for over 30 billion US dollars in more than a month. So even all those sanctions are imposed, they're actually still being able to make a lot of money. And in order to do that, people can go and talk to their MPs or senators and ask them to bring this up to a political level where this decision can be implemented on a government's level. Talking to your MPs and actively supporting Ukraine in various demonstrations, that all helps. And I'm happy to share the link if there's a way to do that, like in the podcast. There are multiple, yeah, there's going to be a link with all those options to help. Again, donations, boycotting Russian goods, signing petitions, all this helps a lot. And again, just spreading the word about what's happening, because in the first couple of weeks, the whole world was buzzing about it, but uh, as the time goes by, and understandably people have their own lives and they forget about what is happening in the country that is. That could be like a thousand miles away, but the war in Ukraine is not over yet. It's far from being over with that planned aggression on Eastern parts. And Putin is not going to stop. Like his main goal is to demolish Ukraine as a country, as a nation. We need to fight back and we need to win. And for that, we need to have awareness around the globe. So continue talking about this, continue watching news. Especially like the independent news, don't ever, don't, don't ever watch Russian TV if you don't want to be zombie. That's the main part from our side, for example, at organization GG, although we were a for-profit platform in the last three weeks, we actually transformed our platform into a non-profit charity platform. So we were currently hosting a 30 day marathon where streamers from all over the world can participate and raise money for Ukraine. And we take zero commission on all these donations. And all these funds directly go to 2 nonprofits. they They're both US registered. I know the, the founders personally. One is called Razom and the other one is called Nova Ukraine. So both of these charities, they're super reliable. They're very hands-on in terms of what is going on in Ukraine. They're able to effectively distribute the money that they raise. So I would highly recommend donating to these specific charities. There's also a way to donate through organization.gg mm-hmm. to these two specific charities, you will just, um, see a link to these like two book, two PayPal accounts and you, you're able to donate there too so if you don't see the link on this podcast just go to organization.gg find the charity campaign click on the donate button and choose whether it's nova ukraine or razum both are good any dollar counts at this time so please do that if you haven't already but a lot of my classmates hasis everyone has been very supportive a lot of my classmates have already donated and the amount of support that ukrainians are getting from all over the world is tremendous and we're very grateful for not only for the words of support but for the real actions and for real pains that you may incur because of this war and we're thankful for that but just to remind the war is not over so we have to push forward and that's the only way
0: yeah Absolutely. Dima, you know, uh, coming to a close, could you share maybe one big takeaway that you would hope Hossies and folks in the Haas community take away from the whole experience in the Ukraine and something that you'd hope to leave folks with as, as either a message or a thought about what's going on and how they can continue to be part of that positive movement to support the folks there?
1: By looking back at what was happening and, you know, the reasons why it happened, I think it all relates to the inactivity of both the population and, and- you know, th- this war could 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 be um, it didn't have to happen if actions were taken timely in, in a proper manner in 2014 or even before, but because the world was focused on other things and it wasn't on its agenda, this is what is like this massacre is currently taking place in Ukraine, but I think it relates to not only to Ukraine, but in anything that's that going on in the world. I know that uh, you cannot focus on, on so many things at a time, but there are just moments in life when you have to make a decision, whether you're you're in or not, and the earlier you make those decisions, the better it is, the less consequences there are for the rest of the world and, and mm-hmm. for you as well. Mm-hmm. We could have made this decision early in 2014, we didn't, and the rest of the world didn't, But This is the right right time to make a decision and to say that you're with Ukraine and to do as much as you can to help us win. Because again, this is not the war of Ukraine against Russia. This is a war of a country with pro-Western, you know, values fighting for its dignity and safety for the whole European continent. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't stop the aggressor right now, we don't know where he's going to stop, but it's not going to be Ukraine. Inactivity is the worst that you can do. So make your decision and start acting. That would be the the main takeaway.
0: Yeah, Dima, it's been awesome to have you on 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 the show today. We're so excited and so thankful that we can share this story, and we look forward to all the hopefully uh, meaningful action that folks, not just in the Haas community, but around the world, do to really support the people and, and the effort in Ukraine. So want to say thanks again, and wish you and your family and your loved ones um, safety and all the best in the coming days.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for this.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears!